Hello and welcome to Foreign and Domestic Unfiltered, episode 21. I'm your host, Ramon Mile, and whoo, boy, if I got some truly choice content for you guys today. We're going to kick off by taking a look at the current Afghanistan situation from a couple of different angles, give a gigantic heaping serving of praise uh, and credit to Joe Biden for absolutely dunking on everyone trying to come at him over his withdrawal and finish up with the topic of some oppo research uh, propaganda analysis on our favorite Fox News boy, Tucker Carlson. And then uh, to end the show, we'll check in on the coronavirus updates for the month, mull over the Delta variant and U.S. policy response. And then also, uh, I shouldn't forget, um, there's actually a little treat at the end with the unveiling of what will hopefully be a regular new addition to the show. So we'll kick off with Biden under fire. Now, we released a quick explainer video for the Afghanistan withdrawal last week. It's, it's, uh, it's in video form with graphics on YouTube and Facebook. We'll have links inside of the episode's bio, so check that out if you haven't. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the channel also. Uh, but but, but now, now we get to have fun. So we get to celebrate cranky old Uncle Joe just sitting down in his rocking chair and refusing to move in the face of the absolute ape shit tantrums being thrown by the media and war-loving politicians alike these past weeks. Uh, now, the, the uproar has weakened a little bit, and it continues at a low hum of nitpicking and criticism over process. So... I thought it would be good to start off if we took a look at the exclusive sit-down interview with George Stephanopoulos and Joe Biden. So would you have withdrawn troops like this even if President Trump had not made that deal with the Taliban? I would have tried to figure out how to withdraw those troops, yes. Because look, George, there is no good time to leave Afghanistan. 15 years ago would have been a problem, 15 years from now. The basic choice is, am I going to send your sons and your daughters to war in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, in perpetuity? No one can name for me a time when this would end. And what's, what, 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 what constitutes defeat of the Taliban? What constitutes defeat? Would we have left then? Let's say they, they, they surrender like before. Okay. Do we leave then? Do you think anybody, the same people who think we should stay, would have said, no, good time to go? We spent over a trillion dollars, George, 20 years. There was no good time to leave. But if there's no good time, if you know you're going to have to leave eventually, why not have the, everything in place to make sure Americans to get out, to make sure our Afghan allies get out, so we don't have these psychotic scenes in Kabul? Number one, as you know, the intelligence community did not say back in June or July, that in fact this was going to collapse like it did, number one. They thought the Taliban would take over, but not this quickly. But not this quickly, not even close. We had already issued several thousand um, uh, uh, passports to the, the SIVs, the people, the, 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 the translators, when I came into office before we had negotiated getting out at the end of uh, 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 August. Secondly, we're in a position where what we did was we took precautions. That's why I authorized that there be 6,000 American troops to flow in to accommodate this exit, number one. And number two, provided all that aircraft in the Gulf to get people out. We pre-positioned all of that, anticipated that. Now, granted, it took two days to take control of the airport. We have control of the airport now. Still a lot of pandemonium outside the airport. Well, there is, but look, but no one's being killed right now. God forgive me for if I'm wrong about that, but no one's being killed right now. People are, we got a thousand, somewhere, 1,200 out yesterday, a couple thousand a day, and it's increasing. We're going to get those people out. So I just want to pause right here because that that is the main sticking point, right? I mean, it, when he, he pivots away from Stephanopoulos's attempt at framing this as a failure based around, oh, well, every everyone didn't leave and exit in an orderly fashion. Like, George, the rest of you crazy people trying to, like, uh, attempt to... 
I don't even know what to call this. I mean, it, it's, it is just propaganda, but it's like a special kind of way where, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to give Americans permission to be like, oh, well, these things look bad and, you know, it could have been handled better. But in reality, if the, if, if the media was being honest about this, this is the end of an occupation. This is the end of our war. This is the continuation of the Afghan civil war. The Taliban are taking control from the previous government. The fact that no Americans have been killed is phenomenal. Okay, so Joe Biden's, uh, his framing of this is absolutely correct. What more can you ask for from our commander in chief? And again, you guys know me like I, is there, I mean, I'm giving Biden a ton of credit here on just the actual policy. He's I don't think he's defending it as well as he could. But this point right here is rock solid. Like there is no argument against that. And that's why you're going to see uh, Stephanopoulos pivot away from it. But that is at the end of the day, guys, like if you're exiting a 20 year war and you're not taking any casualties, how could it have gone any better? You you're you lost. You're retreating. You have no say in how it goes in the country <laughs> that you're leaving. It's not like we're retreating inside of our own territory. And that seems like it's like in this weird way, the way that the, that the media is framing it. And I don't know if it's like they're just doing it in, again, some weaselly way to try to get you to think that way. But or or, or like like I was saying, like or if they're they're just so brainwashed with their, they're smelling their own shit that they've been spewing for decades now. That they feel like that's our territory. It's not our territory. It's not our country. So, again, I mean, we'll hop back in, but it really is mind-blowing. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. We have to move in a way in which we can take control of that airport. And we did. But you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing. Mr. Biden, you, you don't think that this could have been handled a little better? Uh, the country that we've spent 20 years indiscriminately killing civilians accidentally, quote unquote, accidentally uh, with drone strikes and air raids. Uh, you don't think that this could have went a little better? This country that we destabilized the shit out of for uh, 20 years. You don't think so? I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. Now, exactly what happened, I was not priced in, but I knew that they're going to have an enormous, enormous. Look, one of the things we didn't know is what the Taliban would do in terms of trying to keep people from getting out, what they would do. All troops are supposed to be out by August 31st. Even if Americans and our Afghan allies are still trying to get out, they're going to leave. We're going to do everything in our power to get all Americans out and our allies out. Does that mean troops will stay beyond August 31st if necessary? It depends on where we are and whether we can get ramp these numbers up to five to 7,000 a day coming out. If that's the case, it'll be, they'll all be out. Because we've got like 10 to 15,000 Americans in the country right now, right? And are you committed to making sure that the troops stay until every American who wants to be out yes. is out? Yes. How about our Afghan allies? Does the commitment hold for them as well? The commitment holds to get everyone out that, in fact, we can get out and everyone should come out. And that's the objective. A ridiculous question. Uh, will, will you hold troops until every Afghan ally is out? Absolutely ridiculous. That, that's first off, the that's impossible. Like inevitably, some of them are, uh, you know, interpreters, whoever else that collaborated with uh, the American military during the course of all this, like. You're not going to get them all out. Some of these people are going to be compromised. The Taliban are going to get some of them. So that's just right there. Like, again, notice that that's a false premise. Like, no, Americans are going to get out because because here's the here's the next step of what this of what this is going to look like, folks. This is where the next sort of, you know, the next fight to come on all of this is going to be 
we sort of have to rewind. Like everyone has to remember, uh, Donald Trump let the leader of the Taliban out of Guantanamo Bay last year. Okay. Uh, he's the one that Trump cut the deal with for this withdrawal in the first place. So it really all depends on a, how Joe Biden or the rest of the American, you know, uh, intelligence, intelli uh, intelligence apparatus, how they're going to go treat the Taliban as a governing body going forward. Because if you're going to try attempt to actually work with them, or if you're just going to immediately revert back to a war hawk stance where you're like, oh, you're all terrorists. We don't deal. We're not dealing with you. There's no, you know, like, you know, oh, the no preconditions type dumb shit that we've done in our diplomacy for the last 40 fucking years with countries that, you know, don't aren't friendly to America. But it, it is possible after, you know, Trump laid that that groundwork. I talked about this on the last video I did. Um, I've talked about this on social media with people that I've spoken to in real life. Like Trump deserves a ton of credit because not only did he force Biden's hand for the pullout, but he actually, you know, and media will criticize this, but I think it's a good thing. He legitimized Taliban leadership by cutting a deal with them. So the ideal step that has to come next, instead of sitting here worrying like, you know, George's and a lot of these other people, where they're like, oh, well, are you going to be able to get them all out? Well, what about the Afghan allies? You know, ideally what you want to do if you have your citizens still in that country and you're worried there's going to be a problem, you want to keep diplomatic channels open. You want to negotiate in good faith with the people who run the country. It doesn't matter what you think of them or whatever your past history was. They're in control of their country now. So if you know you can't reinvade or impose any military force there, like if you've made that clear cut decision... You have no other choice than to treat us with them, than to, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> talk with them, deal with them, you know, and that's the huge part of what's missing here. Because again, no one wants to frame it in the correct way of, okay, they have control now. So we need to, you know, even Biden here, even though I give him a ton of credit for, you know, the actual pullout and his uh, adamancy in the face of all the outrage around it, you know. He could be doing better uh, sort of laying that groundwork of what I'm talking about right now, basically conditioning the American people and the media, more importantly, of, hey, you know what? They're in fucking control now, so we're going to try to have diplomatic channels open and, and discuss what our needs are and, you know, what we can do here. At least talk about it, because as long as you keep pretending that this is like a one way street, it, it just you're lying to yourself because it isn't anymore. It's over. That that street's shut down. It's closed. There's no access. We're detouring through Tal Talibanistan right now. Okay? So here, we'll just video, finish off the video. That's what we're doing now. That's the path we're on. And I think we'll get there. So Americans should understand that troops might have to be there beyond August 31st. No, Americans should understand that we're going to try to get it done before August 31st. But if we don't, the if, troops will if stay. If we don't, we'll determine at the time who's left. And and if there are American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. Oh, my God. What a, yo, people who like think George Stephanopoulos is like, oh, such a legacy figure like that. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, Jonathan Swan on Axios does way better interview. Like those were bad. A lot of those were just bad questions. I'm sorry. A lot of them were. He, he spent a ton of the. That was only that was my chopped up version. I tried to bring. Uh, you know, fourth a segment of the entire interview that I thought had relevancy to what I wanted to discuss today. But he spent half the interview just doing shit like that, like being like, oh, yeah, and, you know, like trying to like lead him on like he was talking to a fucking kid and he wasn't sitting with the president. Like, and don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, you need to respect the, no, do talk to these people like they're normal people because they are just normal people. Um, but it's like you're he leaves so much room for like these larger issues to be discussed. And I understand like obviously ABC News, you know, Yahoo that he's worked for in the past, you know, those platforms don't want that. But it's like all of the acclaim that these people chase after with like war reporting and all these things like, hey, this is your opportunity. Like ask some good shit. Ask good questions. Ask big picture questions. See, well, you're, he's just asking like the hot list that every anyone in media that's been around that, you know, for decades now, like he has, would love to want to put press Biden on things from their perspective, their framing that they can get him, 
you know, to capitulate on a little bit. Like he did at the end there where he was like, yeah, you know, if I have to send in more troops, they need to stay longer. Yeah. Until every American's out. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I just, it was so funny to watch, man. It really is. I love the fact that Joe Biden has just delightfully turned out to be like the perfect man for the job for this, because even though Trump like set those plans in motion, I don't know if he would not have buckled under the pressure because, you know, don't get it twisted. Like Biden was under a ton of pressure for a while. You know what I mean? It only alleviated because he dug his heels in so hard to the point where, you know, as I discussed in that previous uh, Afghanistan breakdown video, like his party was forced to circle the wagons around him. You know, when your president straight up is like, no, fuck you, this is the right move and I'm sticking by it. You kind of have no choice as a party. You got midterms coming up. Uh, you know, races are already starting off. You you have to support him. So, um, yeah, just I thought that was a good one. I thought that was a good one. <laughs> but um, so here I want to pivot away from that interview. We're gonna stay on Afghanistan. Um, I got a New York Times article here titled "Intelligence Warned of Afghan Military Collapse Despite Biden's Assurances." So they made reference to um, this topic and Biden even sort of took a shot at this piece, I think, in that interview um, where he said he was like, oh, no, they didn't say that in July. So he he's basically um, there was this piece that was written and there were a couple others. But this this piece in The New York Times is an actual uh, leak from intelligence. There, this is a, there are a couple sources in this article that uh, one is. One source is someone that's familiar with the intelligence, and another source is an actual intelligence operative, agent, could just be a pencil pusher, whoever, but that has firsthand knowledge, allegedly, of what they're describing in this article. So let's get into it. So uh, the article begins with, quote, classified assessments by American spy agencies over the summer painted an increasingly grim picture of the prospect of a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and warned of the rapid collapse of the Afghan military. Even as President Biden and his advisors said publicly that this was unlikely to happen as quickly, according to current and former American government officials. By July, many intelligence reports grew more pessimistic questioning whether any Afghan security forces could muster serious resistance and whether the government could hold on in Kabul, the capital. President Biden said on July 8th that the Afghan government was unlikely to fall and that there would be no chaotic evacuations of Americans similar to the end of the Vietnam War. One report in July, as dozens of Af Afghan districts were falling and Taliban fighters were laying siege to several major cities, laid out the growing risks to Kabul, noting that Afghan government, the Afghan government was unprepared for a Taliban assault, according to a person familiar with the intelligence. So let's pause there real quick, because even um, Stephanopoulos, he referred to it in the, an earlier part of the interview that I didn't include in the clip. But um, he quoted Mitch McConnell, uh, <laughs> basically being like, oh, well, the intelligence didn't suggest that... Uh, 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 Kabul would stand. Uh, so, I mean, we're at the, it literally could be any Republican, like anyone who gets Senate, uh, intelligence briefings could be the source, uh, that was just, uh, referenced there. But, and that's the thing, you know, when you, when you get these kinds of articles, these sort of Monday morning quarterback articles around foreign policy and there's intelligence leaks of this nature, you don't really know exactly where it's coming from. So you need to take it with a gigantic grain of salt. And, and I'll be completely honest with you, me personally, like anytime I read any of these, I don't believe them. I just, I don't, um, this came out, I believe this came out four or five days ago in the New York times. And I read it and just laughed the entire time because it, the entire thing just reads as it's a mea culpa. It's basically, I, it's not even, I wouldn't even call it that actually. It's more of like an explainer uh, that launches a defense of like encompassing the entire intelligence apparatus in America, basically being like, well, we had this right, you know, but we told him, we told him this was going to happen. And I just, I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Um, so it continues, intelligence agencies predicted that should the Taliban seize cities, a cascading collapse could happen rapidly and the Afghan security forces were at high risk of falling apart. It is unclear whether other reports during this period presented a more optimistic picture about the ability of Afghan military and the government in Kabul to withstand the insurgents. On April 27th, when the State Department ordered the departure of non-essential personnel from the embassy in Kabul, the overall intelligence assessment was still 
that a Taliban takeover was at least 18 months away, according to administration officials. So they did include that very hidden deep down in the article, um, which is what Biden was referring to. And, you know, some many of his defenders who probably had access to uh, intelligence uh, uh, briefings where, look, as soon as, you know, close to the first week of May, intelligence was saying, hey, yeah, Kabul will stand for like 18 months. You know what I mean? Which would make sense under normal circumstances if, you know, uh, it's a bunch of stuff that we're going to get into here as we flesh this out a little more. But if this was just like a normal country we were assisting and it wasn't a country we bombed into submission for 20 years, uh, filled to the hilt with American contractors that the Afghan military was completely dependent on for their operations. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here, but let's focus on what I think are the most critical and tangible aspects of this entire withdrawal. Uh, so, first of all, it's really interesting that there happens to be an intelligence leak like now after the withdrawal began. I mean, if these people actually thought Biden was dropping the ball by not increasing troop numbers or tweaking the timeline for airlift uh, evacuation operations, then where was this leak weeks or months ago when it could have had an actual impact? You know, again, Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, thanks for telling me, uh, intelligence people, don't really believe you, but why didn't you say anything earlier if this was such a catastrophic failure that you foresaw? Um, second, given the history of and preceding this 20-year consistent timeline of fake intelligence, stovepiping select information to the media, and general rogue behavior of our intelligence agencies, I, I don't I don't blame Biden for saying just saying fuck it and pulling the plug. I mean, think about what that must be like stepping into that position of president and having to rely on institutions that have literally amassed their power through extortion, deception, and probably literal murder of the executive branch, uh, JFK. Um, and then third, and arguably most important, I wouldn't put it past these spooks that they're attempting to play like three-dimensional chess here and intentionally sabotaged what they saw was going to be an actual end to this war by gassing everyone up to think it would take months for Kabul to fall so that we would have the exact results that we had. I mean, I wouldn't put this past them either. Uh, you know, creating sort of a domino takeover uh, in, in the blink of an eye, hopefully nudging Biden to either bring more troops in or to condition him to never do anything like this again. And I mean, let's not forget how important an asset farm Afghanistan has been to the CIA. You know, all the opium production to fund black operations. It's a staging ground to launch uh, uh, around the Middle East from. And it's a lucrative arena for the world of American defense contractors. You know, it's one of the top three. Um I mean, in, in the media, just concern trolling about the military's deployment for evacuation and Biden's administration's handling of it. But they never want to seem to mention the gigantic role that defense contractors played just in just leaving so, so soon. Um, I've got right here the latest Defense Department quarterly report indicated that the total number of uh, contractors in Afghanistan dropped significantly over the last three months from nearly 17,000. Uh, contractors in April to 7,800 in July. Preliminary reports analyzing the fallout from American forces evacuating so quickly seem to correctly lay a lot of the blame at the feet of the strategy to make the Afghan military rely so heavily on U.S. contractors. So I've got here from Foreign Policy Magazine. It is titled, Departure of Private Contractors Was a Turning Point in Afghan Military's Collapse. The article begins with, for two decades, contractors provided key maintenance and military support. Quote, military analysts trying to understand the stunning collapse of the Afghan military are now increasingly pointing to the departure of the U.S. government contractors starting a month ago as one of the key turning points. The Afghans had relied on contractors for everything from training and gear maintenance to preparing them for intelligence gathering and close air support in their battles against Taliban fighters. Thousands of those contractors, often military veterans who work for private security firms, left Afghanistan weeks ago and deployed elsewhere in the region or in the Persian Gulf. Quote, it was like their departure. Uh, it was their departure that led to the erosion of the capability of the Afghan Air Force elements, which were critical, 
a, a former senior U.S. commander with extensive experience in Afghanistan, told foreign policy on a condition of anonymity. Now, Biden administration officials insist the problem with the Afghan army wasn't insufficient training or equipment, but rather a lack of determination to fight the Taliban. Uh, a top Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby, told reporters on Monday, quote, you cannot buy will. You cannot purchase leadership, and leadership was missing, as we've been saying, for weeks. And, you know, I think that that analysis is exactly correct. If you're in the Afghan army and you see all these contractors uh, and American personnel are leaving day by day before your eyes, and you're, you're seeing the tally of fallen cities stacking up week by week, why would you fight? You, you know, the, the side you've been fighting on is unpopular amongst the people, you know the Taliban will definitely retaliate against conspirators with the Americans. Uh, wouldn't the smart thing to do to be to take off your uniform and try to survive? I mean, to protect your family? Uh, to maybe live to fight another day? Reform your country from the inside? You know, if you have that aspiration? Uh, you know, one of the biggest problems with our media's analysis on the Afghan army's performance is that it completely lacks the nuanced human considerations. They've all been speaking for weeks as if every member of the Afghan military is like some universal soldier programmed by America, when in reality, they're real people who have to make heavy decisions about what they and their family's lives will look like once that last American soldier gets on a plane, you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that'll wrap up our Afghanistan coverage um, on the Biden end anyway. Now we get to have some fun. We're going to go hop into... Uh, my boy Tucker Carlson's insane take here. Uh, so let, let's pivot away from the greater media at large and their inadequacies, and we'll take a look at what our right-wing counterparts are pushing into the zeitgeist. Um, and you guys know me. I think it's important to keep an eye on what your political opposition's mouthpieces are strategizing around to develop counterpoints, you know, for everyday discourse. So we've all heard the super hawkish takes from the likes of Hannity, conservative talk radio, and John Bolton somehow in a disgustingly sick, ironic twist being treated as an expert guest on some of these shows. But uh, like I said, let's check in on our favorite little chocolate soldier, Tucker, and uh, see what his fake populist take is. We'll sp be spending a lot more time on that subject in recent, in coming weeks, because it matters. But first, since Kabul has just fallen, it might be worth asking the most obvious question of all. Why did the Taliban win? How did the 6th century triumph over the 21st century? There are indications that the single most notorious and reviled government in the world, primitive people famous for their brutality, rigidity, and humorlessness, are more popular in parts of Afghanistan than they were when we expelled the mullahs from Kandahar 20 years ago. They don't seem to be less popular. So how did that happen? What's the answer? How, how did that happen? How is America unpopular? How did that happen? Do you think he'll tell us? I don't know. Let, let's see. I'm sure you guys know the answer. I've said it like five times already. We ought to pause to think about that. Let's not just blow past it like it was an act of God. It's not. <laughs> what is the answer? Well, countries are very complicated, all of them. So there are likely many answers. <laughs> But one of those answers may be that the population of Afghanistan has firmly rejected what our leaders were selling it over 20 years. It turns out that the people of Afghanistan don't actually want gender studies symposia. They didn't actually buy the idea that men can become pregnant. They thought that was ridiculous. They don't hate their own masculinity. They don't think it's toxic. They like the patriarchy. They like the patriarchy. Some of their women like it too. Why don't ours? You know, that's basically he's making this argument. But wait, wait, wait. So why is America so unpopular among these people? Hmm, Tucker, could it be the fucking tens of thousands of bombs we dropped on them? I mean, it's really, guys, like... It, but this is why I get... Tucker Carlson is the most made dangerous man on the right. You know, he took that crown away from Rush Limbaugh a long time ago, in my opinion, because I, even Limbaugh couldn't pull this shit off. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think even he could. I don't think he could. I wouldn't even call this hiding the ball. Like, he's literally just, like, vaporized it and took it off the court. Um, he He's making the argument right now that, 
like SJW-dom, like people being woke, is why people in the Middle East and Afghanistan hate us. I mean, that that really is like, that's shocking. And if, and you know, he's the most popular guy on Fox. He's the top, I'm pretty sure he's actually the, 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 the most watched man on TV, on news uh, currently. He's held that title for quite a while now. But the fact that you can just gloss over that shit and uh, your audience will just nod their heads and, like, eat it up while, like, sipping a Bud, uh, Budweiser and just be like, goddamn right, Tucker. You know, that's fucking astonishing uh, and, and dangerous because it, it fits so perfectly with the rest of how, again, this narrative I've been building around just media, just memory holding everyone in the media just completely throwing into the abyss their knowledge of everything that happened the last 20 years. Like, they're acting like this is some brand new shit. Like, this is a country, like, we just walked into in 2019 or something. <laughs> I mean, Tucker, just, just the craziest hot take I've seen from him in a long time. Some of their women like it, too. So now they're getting it all back. So maybe it's possible that we failed in Afghanistan because the entire neoliberal program is grotesque. It's a joke. It's contrary to human nature. It answers none of our deepest human desires. It is merely a performance staged for the performer. It's not even supposed to improve your life. It's ridiculous. And ideas that ridiculous can only be imposed by force, only with armed men at gunpoint. The moment these ideas are not mandatory, the second the troops withdraw, in fact, people tend to revert to the lives that they prefer to live. That may be the real lesson of Afghanistan. Let's hope our leaders notice. Okay, so, I mean, yeah, he, I, he's had quite a few, uh, like, super magma hot takes on the whole uh, Afghanistan uh, withdrawal here. And, you know, him trying to jazz his audience up of, uh, he's sort of trying to straddle this line between he can't come out and do the same things that everybody else on Fox is and like the rest of the media at large, where he's sort of like nitpicking the process of how Joe Biden left because Tucker's sort of established himself as, you know, I call him a paleo conservative all the time. He's very, he, he positions himself as an isolationist anti-war, you know, the in the same way Trump did when Trump ran, you know what I mean? They were sort of simpatico in that regard where uh, I think it sort of makes sense that Tucker... Uh, ascended to the top of the Fox News junk pile because he was probably the closestly politically aligned person to Trump who, you know, was massively popular in the party. Um, I mean, as much as you can say Trump has politics, I mean, I don't really... I, I think that he's just... I think in some fashion, like, Trump is, like, the, one of the truest populists to come out of the Republican Party ever because he sort of, like, he crowd surfs. You know what I mean? Like... He feels the room he put and, and there's no denying it that he put his finger on the pulse of this country and, and, and saw all the, you know, the, 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 the distress and the pain of just not understanding, you know, this concept that I talk about all the time, like America not being willing to deal with the just the hard truth that this empire, this neo-colonial imperialist empire is in the end phase. We're on the last leg. And he was sort of the carnival barker that, like, you know, brought the elephant out and made you forget that, you know, <laughs> you this is like the last show of your life. Like, like literally, like the fucking circus tent top's going to come crashing and burning down on you at the end. Um, but, yeah, no, I just wanted to pop in on Tucker because just, whew, I mean, scorching hot takes right there. Scorching hot. Folks. The, the people of Afghanistan uh, immediately turned tail and ran when the Taliban came because we were teaching them that uh, women can have jobs and, like, go to school. That's, yeah, that's why. That's exactly why. So, moving on here. Now we're done with Afghanistan. I'm sick of talking about it, uh, to be honest. I mean, there was a bunch of good... There was a lot of good, interesting stuff that came out of it. I'm glad that it sort of brought to the forefront um, foreign policy for the first time this year, really, I would argue, or actually the last two years. Um, and, you know, it's sort of it's needed because every now and then I feel like if something doesn't I feel like a lot of Americans only engagement with foreign policy has been terrorism. And that's just on its face. Not good. Um, so I think it's 
this is really a a useful teachable moment for a lot of people to a remember hey we all wanted to get out of afghanistan you know what i mean the war in afghanistan was polling below 25 percent for years now uh for i think over a decade so you know like america this is what we wanted <laughs> you know what i mean you don't get to you don't get to um you know tell someone like oh i'd really like a diamond ring or whatever and then like bitch about the cut or the, you know, the clarity or something after. Like, no, you got what you fucking wanted. You know what I mean? You didn't pay for it. You were just, I mean, we did pay for Afghanistan, two trillion, but you get my point. It's not, you, you, we got what we wanted. And we're going to sit here and nitpick and bitch about it. You know what I mean? Be grateful. Be grateful that an American president actually fucking ended a war. You know what I mean? On its face. I don't give a shit about any of this ticky tack nonsense anyone else is talking about. At the end of the day, the overwhelming good is the fact that we are leaving a country where we were inarguably making a lot of people's lives a lot worse. If not, you know, in, in the last year of sort of the ceasefire, but we were dragging out uh, sort of the evolutionary course that this country was going to go down once we left. The inevitable course. You know what I mean? Uh, so... That's all I got on that. Um, now we're going to spin into COVID chat. Folks, it's been a while since we've even done a full episode. Um, I believe the last one that we did was infrastructure year. Before that was the war on drugs. And we haven't really touched on coronavirus. And there's been a, quite a bit of movement since the last recording. So I'm going to take a bit of a victory lap here. Um not because I ended up being right, but really just like for a relief for my sanity, um, I'm going to claim victory for my sanity. Because if you've been a listener for a while, you'll remember our episode on India where we covered the insane second wave back in the first week of May there. Uh, we quoted several World Health Organization medical personnel who were sounding the alarm bell for a new mutation that pierced vaccinated people's defenses. Now remember, this is this was the first. This was April, late late April that this came out, and the episode we published it the first week of May. Now the variant that they were experiencing in India at the time was actually the Delta variant. It just hadn't been named yet. And you'll also remember me screaming about Bill Gates being a lying sack of shit for about ten minutes on that episode if you heard it. But oh man, it, it's so sweet to see the obviousness of the logic I had fit perfectly into place. Uh, how it fits perfectly into place of where we are now because there was no conversation being had about the possible need for booster shots back then but there was a reignition of the debate over publicizing intellectual property for the vaccines to ramp up production in and for use in third world countries now i had thought it what I had what I thought was a completely logical take of, you know, hey, we should prioritize vaccinating people who want it in these third world countries to take a whack at the global baseline of infections and possibly slow down the extremely fast mutation rate of this virus. Um, so now enter Forbes magazine. Uh, this article was published on Monday. The headline is World Health Organization leader pleads against booster shots questioning the efficacy and highlighting risk of more potent variants. <clears throat> World Health Organization Director Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Yeah, he's got a crazy name. Guy looks cool, though. Um, we'll just call him Tedros. Uh, he pleaded with countries during a news conference in Hungary to share what can be used for boosters to help in other places and increase their first and second vaccination coverage, according to reporters at the event. He argued that wealthy nations stockpiling the vaccine increases the risk that stronger variants will develop in countries with low inoculation rates. Not only could the hyperinfectious Delta variant become more virulent, but more potential variants could also emerge, he warned. If the virus gets, quote, the chance to circulate in countries with low vaccination coverage. Furthermore, the World Health Organization director called into question whether booster shots are effective at all. A comment that comes days after the organization's chief scientist, Sumya Swamithan, Swamithan, Swaminathan, Swaminathan. Wow, these guys got some crazy names. Um, she said, uh, quote, the data today does not indicate that boosters are needed. 
Now, Tedros said boosters should only be doled out to people with weak immune systems. There is not enough research on the topic. Now, research published in the journal Science last week backed up Tedros's suggestion that stockpiling supplies could lead to a new, possibly more dangerous variant of, of the virus and an increasing number of COVID-19 infections. Researchers found that sharing vaccine supplies could help alleviate long-term risks, reducing the overall number of cases long-term. So, I mean, folks, again, like, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I have my crystal ball. I was right. It was like, no, this made sense. Everything, again, like, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy on his couch reading articles. I can understand how these people break it down in the lay term, how, I mean, I feel like this was like a hugely forgotten point. Like, the way that this virus, uh, the rate at which this virus spreads is so exponential that if you don't at least attempt to have the countries like America, the UK, whoever else in the West, France, whoever, all of this overstock of vaccines that we have, you know, you should be shipping that to other countries because you can help slow down that exponential growth of, of when these new variants that are more virulent explode on the world stage, you could be helping alleviate that exponential growth. You know what I mean? And Anyone who understands the basic concept of exponential growth, I mean, that that's that's it. You don't need to be a fucking uh, uh, immunologist, a virologist, any of this shit. You don't need to be. It's that simple. Um, it really isn't that complicated. But so we're in the classic situation of our global politic in this age where short-term gain and wins on perception continue to outweigh long-term benefits that have clear evidence. So... Hopefully we start seeing more politicians on the left making these considerations and being willing to break ranks with our CDC and other scientific communities on this issue. Um, and the reason I say that is because, um, you know, I, I, I felt the pressure. Like every time that we would have the, you know, we would record the show and we would talk about coronavirus stuff. Um, you know, obviously I have no expertise in this area. Um, I'm reading a ton of, uh, research I'm reading like from actual scientists. I'm reading their breakdowns of, of studies, uh, reading other people's peer reviews, uh, them comment on each other's work. You know, I'm trying to pay a, a, a solid amount of attention to it and do my due diligence before I speak about it. And, I, but like, I would feel the pressure because there's so much social pressure around, you know, oh, well, you're not an expert, blah, blah, blah. You're not this and that. And, there's certainly a ton of pressure for scientists in this country um, where if you sort of try to get ahead of or start defaming the CDC's decisions when you're in these communities, you know, you can have real career impact. Um, uh, you know, there's government grants, funding, all kinds of stuff, research projects, things that you might not get in, you might not get lined up for you uh, if you try to be a maverick on this type of shit. And I, and I think that that pressure is real because what these people have been talking about the world health organization for months now, you know, like I said, that original article was going back to April when they were talking about the Delta variant. You can't sit here and tell me that no one at the CDC had any idea that that was happening in April when, you know, my 30 year old ass was sitting on the couch reading Indian journalists reporting on it at the time. You know what I mean? I was reading Indian newspapers online and it's like, wow, yeah, this sounds problematic. Uh, it's piercing people who are vaccinated because at that time the science was saying, oh no, we were all being told that was right before the lead up to summer. Yeah. Hey, you get vaccinated. You're safe. You don't have to worry about anything. And then it slowly moved to, okay, well you can still get coronavirus because Delta's here, but you more, you're, it's, you're so much less likely. You're basically completely unlikely to be hospitalized or die. And we learning more and more about breakthrough infections. But my main criticism that I had, you know, a few episodes after the India episode was when the CDC was like, oh, we're going to not recommend masks anymore. And it's like, OK, so I have in the back of my head the stuff that I was reading about India and how the Delta variant was present in like seven other countries. It was already in America at that point, by the way, folks. It was already here. I believe it was in Australia, Ireland, America, and there was seven countries, including India, that it was known Uh and that's, you know, just in my head, it was just like, well, you know, if you if you're already starting to plateau, which I felt, you know, we were at that point. Uh, before, I think Delta scared enough people to start getting more and more vaccinated um, or people that weren't previously to get vaccinated. But 
it was just such a crazy decision for them to, because again, like we've talked about from the beginning and all this, like it's all about public perception around how honest they think you're being with us. You know, a lot of this kicked off with Fauci being like, hey, you don't need masks, don't get masks. And we later found out that was because they were afraid that medical workers weren't going to be able to, uh, and, and medical systems weren't going to be able to acquire the masks if Americans went out and panic purchased before the supply side was able to ramp up properly for a pandemic. Um, and, you know, that's on the books. And I'm not calling any of these other things that I was talking about before lies. I'm not saying that. I have no evidence that they were lies. I just, I feel like they were just sort of, being like, okay, well, this is what we know now today that's here in this country, when you have to be thinking globally with this shit because all of the worst variants that we've had in this country didn't come from our country. So if you aren't going to widen the scientific scope of considering what can come down the pike and you're only going to look at it as, okay, here's where, again, that short-term thinking, um, where it's like, oh, we're about to go into summer. You know, I mentioned on other episodes where I was like, you know, this is the CDC we're talking about. Like, it, there a lot of, Things that happen to CDC do get extremely politicized because, uh, you know, the executive branch probably leans on them a little bit, especially with something like this. We had economic lockdowns last year. Nobody wanted another one. And consumer confidence was slowly climbing back up coming in the beginning of this year. And I just I don't know how a mask mandate from the CD or not a mask mandate, but a mask recommendation from the CDC staying in place all summer might have changed things on a macro level for the economics of this country. Um, and I think that that influenced a lot of that decision because for me, it didn't even make any sense. It's like, okay, you knew Delta was here. It wasn't termed that yet, but, and you had a boatload of research from a bunch of scientists around the world with their hair fucking on fire about this. And no one in American media was talking about it. You know, Fauci wasn't going on TV talking about this shit. He was still doing hearings and all kinds of stuff. He wasn't telling us about this. And to be fair, you know, he's got his own shit to worry about. He probably isn't looking at, uh, you know, variants around the world and all that. But at the end of the day, it's like, come on, man. You you can't tell me all this money, all this funding that they thought that that was a prudent decision. I just, you know, it, it bothers me a little bit. But yeah, so, you know, if, if having the rug pulled out from under us twice now with this virus isn't enough for us to reconsider our long term strategies, then, you know, I think I think we're in trouble. Uh, especially when you talk about how we're, I, I believe, I think 75, uh, million vaccination, uh, doses have been donated to third world countries and, uh, 90% of those are only 10 countries. So we're not doing a great job in that regard. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, charity organizations that a lot of countries in the West that have all this vaccine stockpile, are donating to, but it doesn't really seem to be making much of a dent, folks. So I think that it would behoove all of us to pay attention and understand these concepts that are coming from scientists that aren't in our country looking at this from a different perspective and being like, hey, you know what? We should probably try to raise the level of the global vaccinations rather than focusing on knocking countries out. Because if we keep allowing these countries that are petri dishing, that have very low vaccination rates, that are having wild uh, uh, outbreaks that just run rampant the way that India did. And it sort of makes sense, right? Remember how horrifying uh, the the visuals were from India? Remember how they had all those mass graves outside just burning people uh, and throwing them in, you know, throwing people in pits, burning bodies? It sort of makes sense that something, again, I'm not a fucking scientist, but like if you have a country that has a population that big and it rips through it, it sort of makes sense that, you know, a virus would mutate in a country like that that has almost no one vaccinated. You know what I mean? And a giant population to sort of feed off, learn off of as a virus. You know, it sort of makes sense. Um, but again, what the fuck do I know? You know. <laughs> um, all right. So that's all I got, guys. Um, now, in regards to the little surprise, the little treat I was just talking about at the beginning, um, I would like to. I would like to start featuring local artists' music at the end of every show. And for our inaugural closing music, we have Jedi Rider, a.k.a. Ryan Quinn. Ryan was uh, one of my band of brothers in, on the Schenectady High School football team for several years. He is an accomplished local act. This song that I'm about to play is off of his new album, 
Letters to a Savage, dropping Friday, October 22nd. That is Jedi Rider, folks, at Jedi Rider on all social platforms. All right, enjoy. closet i just left them from my dark ages you ain't think i know you top tier let's stop here been falling for you slowly like a play put on by shakespeare and that's my deepest dark fear because i've been living life but slowly losing myself and every time i get to write i feel i'm spilling myself so if i pour my soul out would you drink it just know i give you all of me and everything girl just stop thinking that the con should overtake the pros i know you busy so i'm never gonna try to impose but loyalty runs deep and know my energy is gold i'll be the beast to your beauty last petal from the rose yeah. running out of time running out of time girl can you change my mind can you change my mind girl feel i'm running out of time running out of time girl can you change my mind can you change my mind girl yeah. i know the first time was kind of shaky Everyone and anyone was telling me you crazy But I don't think they ever sat with you And just held a conversation Just to realize you a special girl in every which way And know it's hard to take for granted How you're feeling for yourself No depression is a demon that we share So mental health is more important than me reaching for love No, I take an account for everything we discuss No, I ain't ever forcing anyone for they trust No, I lay my feelings so they ain't mistaken for lust And just know that I appreciate your honesty For being hella real Cause it's the fact that you ain't hiding now Explaining all your feels got me thinking, take care of myself. I know you know that everything I ever did was heartfelt. And if it never works, I pray to God you get what you deserve. Because there ain't no other woman like you up in the universe like Sam. Running out of time, girl. Can you change my mind? Can you change my mind, girl? Feeling running out of time. Running out of time, girl. Can you change my mind? Can you change my 